Hello and welcome to our second episode of the Airmic Talks CEO series where leaders from the UK's leading risk and insurance organisations join myself, Richard Kutcher, and a senior Airmic member to discuss insurance beyond the hard market. Julian James, CEO of Sompo International, was our first interviewee two weeks ago. So if you did miss that episode, please do be sure to catch up. At some point, you can just scroll back down your podcast feed. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox, or any other podcast app. Just search for Air McTalks. But I'm delighted to say joining me for this episode is Claire McDonald, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at HDI Global. Claire has more than 30 years of insurance experience, previously working in global roles at Allianz before joining HDI in 2019. And joining us from the Airmic membership to add his two cents is Matthew McEwen, Director of Risk Management at Coca-Cola European Partners. Over the next 25 minutes, Claire and Matt, among other topics, debate the prospect of longer-term policies, the potential entrance of a major disruptor in the corporate insurance space, and the optimum role for brokers. But first, we begin with a question that we ended with when we spoke to Julian James in the last episode, and that is what free innovations Claire would introduce to the reinsurance marketplace if she had our trusty Airmic magic wand. Um, I've had a good think about this. And from my side of things, I would think, let's start with the simple. Well, it should be simple, but it's not. Uh, and that is a standardized set of data across the market and or data quality of that data. It strikes me that this shouldn't be too difficult, but it seems to be that, that which, you know, and I've worked in a number of different companies, we are consuming far too much time and effort particularly for property-based risks in cleansing and formatting data. And I'm sure that's not really where the client is wanting us to spend our time and attention on their particular risk. I'm sure they'd much rather us be looking at the detail of the risk and trying to mess around with the data and get it uploaded in some sort of way. So I think there's got to be an easier way to do that. And, and could the brokers perhaps come together, the major brokers come together to tackle that and, and put some sort of standardized format out? So that's the first idea I've, I've had. And, and that comes from personal pain experience as well along the way. Um, the second area where I think with what's happened with the pandemic over the last year, we've started to see this is virtual surveys. And we've trialed some of this ourselves and trialed some different technologies or different ways of doing that. And I think that can be really effective in terms of not only for our risk engineers, in terms of cutting down the amount of travel or the amount of dead time effectively on the road to get to these locations, but potentially it's also good for the customer or the client because more people could attend that survey virtually. Um, it could be a good learning uh, mechanism, both for internal staff and also perhaps for insurance staff. But I think it, may, it might not be for every survey, but I think, you know, for a fair proportion, perhaps follow-up visits or that sort of thing, um, it could be really effective in terms of cost reduction, time reduction, um, and again, giving us a little bit more efficiency. And my last magic wand would be the space to rethink who does what. And that's probably quite a big statement there, but... I, I can't help but think, you know, the other roles that we have in the process, the right one to where we are now and the future, bearing in mind how much technology has changed and effectively that we're following a process that probably hasn't changed very much in the last 200 years. So in a way that the pandemic's made us think, why are we all getting on the train for a nine o'clock start? What, why are we doing that? I think, you know, could it be an opportunity in sometime in the near future 
that we say, okay, you know, who, who actually needs to do this bit of the process? And can we trust each other perhaps a bit more that maybe the customer, the insurer does some elements of it and it's not the broker or the client does some elements of it and it's not the broker and the insurer or, or vice versa. And, and we actually sort of have a rethink as to who's doing what and is it the most efficient way that we're doing it? So that's my thoughts on that one. Thanks, Claire. I guess as a client of HDIA, would have quite liked to have heard you say you'd give the magic wand to one or more of your clients, but uh, putting that to one side, I just wanted to actually pick up your first comment about you know the simple thing, and that resonates with me quite a lot about standardising sets of data, and th- this has been talked about you know for an age. I mean, I'm there a bit of a grandee of the the risk management community, and I think even when I started, people were talking about this. And, you know, what is it? What is the barrier, you know, within the marketplace why this is not happening? Is there a lack of appetite? Or do you think that, you know, you mentioned in a couple of your responses about some of the reflections and reactions to the the pandemic, do you think that as people are beginning to think things through a little differently, maybe through, you know, you mentioned virtual surveys, they're really looking at about how to leverage technology more. And do you see this as the, as the catalyst for change, really bringing some of those stakeholders together to say, you know what, we do need to get on with this and standardise some of the approaches? Yeah, I think it's quite a shake-up, isn't it? We've all had to think a little bit differently. And I think we've had to accelerate some of our thinking. And, you know, you know, who would, you know a year and a half ago, we wouldn't have imagined that we're all running our companies, including the financial services sector running all of our companies from, from home and, and actually doing fine. You know, who would have thought the office was was not that much of a necessity? You know, particularly when we've been arguing, you know, when there's been a bit of resistance to now, you know, flexible working or working from home has been seen as a bit of a perk until, you know, we wanted everybody to work from home and then it's not quite the same perk. So I think we've seen a lot of companies, you know, change their, their, their operating model. I think it's making us think differently. And I do hope it is an accelerator for change. And I do think if we can be this different 15 months on from where we were in terms of how we were, what else can we do? But again, it probably touches on, I think, so that we'll probably pick up a little bit later in this conversation, which is about sort of that diversity angle and thinking about things differently and having the space to think about things differently. It strikes me that we've sort of all been in that pattern of, of we, we've been continuing to do something in a similar way to how the generation before has done it, but we've just slightly modified it. And, you know, is, is, it, is it a ripe time or is there an opportunity to perhaps think a bit bigger? I mean, okay, we've had the accord sort of grouping around sort of data standards and stuff, but it never really took off in any meaningful way. Like it didn't really touch me personally in terms of, you know, how I would see data come through. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe this is something where London or the UK could be a, a, another sort of innovation, really. I mean, we were the great innovators around the, the insurance market in the first place. So could we be the innovators again in terms of in terms of changing up the process? Perhaps that's an opportunity for a Dragon's Den pitch, Claire, uh, to maybe get some investors in there. Um, I'm really interested, though, where you mentioned about, you know, thinking differently and really just kind of maybe expanding on that theme. I think one of the bugbears, I think, in the broader risk management community is this whole focus on short-terminism, you know, the, the 12-month cycle, you know, and, and, and it's increasingly challenged, I think, uh, over the last couple of years with the, the so-called market correction where it feels as though you're just getting over a renewal 
a couple of months to bed things down and then you're back into the renewal cycle again. And I think a lot of risk managers are increasingly shifting to be almost insurance managers as opposed to you know, what they're really trying to add value for their corporations. So I just wonder, you know, what do you think can happen in the near term about shifting this kind of 12-month focus into something a little bit more longer term, whether it's true long-term agreements or whether it's things like evergreen uh, type structures. Have you got any views on that, Claire? Yeah, I have. And, and funny enough, we, we have got a client where we front for the captive. So we've got no risk retention. We, we have risk retention for other lines of business for this particular customer, but, but not in the particular area that we're talking about. And, and that was a problem that they had and they wanted uh, long, long-term long policies put in place. And, and we were able to, you know, we, we checked out and in most countries you can issue a policy that is longer than 12 months. And for this particular customer, we've issued quite a lot of five-year policies. But having said that, we've been able to do that because we've got no reinsurance, you know, the, no treaty reinsurance sitting in the background. And We'll, we'll be in a similar position at HDI than most of the market will be that we do buy reinsurance protections. And those reinsurance protections normally come with a, a caveat around the length of the policy that you're insuring. So, you know, that would normally be, you know, we're expecting you to write a 12-month renewable policy, you know, maybe maximum 18 months with extensions. And beyond that, it's a treaty referral. So I think if we were to really sort of think sort of long-term, long-term, I think we also need then to understand what that impact looks like in the reinsurance market and whether or not treaties would be in the same way. Or do we look then at just doing that where there's potentially net capacity, if it made sense? But I think there's there's probably an unwillingness to, beyond the sort of conventional long-term agreements where you've got some element of flex, there's probably some unwillingness or reluctance, shall I say, it's probably a better word, in that corporate market insurance sector to tie up for such a for tie up for like a five year period because of, of just how much can change in that period of time, uh, risk could substantially change, experience could could change, um, and 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 what would that mean in terms of our pricing or terms and conditions flexibility? So, and I think the other difficulty you've got there as well, Matt, is is the subscription market. In the for most of the risks that we're talking about, you've got to then coordinate a whole group of people, haven't you, that are equally going to be able to be able to do the same thing. And I just don't think the flexibility is there within the reinsurance structures that we have. Yeah, really, really interesting, Claire. And, and good to hear some of that explanation, particularly around obviously the necessity regarding kind of treaty reinsurance and that restrictions to some degree that might put on the primary market. So to take this conversation a bit beyond the kind of current market cycles and, and beyond the hard market, which is the title of this series, we obviously we want to we want to be seen. Everyone has an interest in building a more sustainable insurance market. What skill sets do you foresee will need to be addressed by the insurers, the brokers, and even the clients themselves to make a, a more sustainable insurance market work and to attract and retain the right kind of talent? Yeah, if we start with the talent perspective, um, I think we we all we all owe it to ourselves, don't we, to be more communicative communicative about what a good career insurance can be or risk management can be. And we have to get that message out to a wider base in society. We tend to have an industry that you're in insurance. I mean, I'm not one of these people. I didn't know anybody in insurance, but it just happened to come up in the 
the careers for and when, when I went along. But generally, you, we've got a high percentage of people in insurance that are there because a friend of theirs or parents or there's some sort of connection that's told them about insurance. We're, we're not necessarily attracting the, the widest or the most diverse range of talent. I don't think insurance is perceived as particularly sexy. Well, I think it should be. Um, I think, you know, if you if you look in comparison to a number of other industries in the financial services sector, insurance does give back. It does have a common purpose. It does provide a mechanism for society to evolve. I think there's lots of good things we could be saying to it. Um, and one of my side roles, I'm, I'm chair of IWIN, which is the um, part of the insurance livery company that's focused on, on how we develop, attract and retain, particularly female talent. And we're supporting the She Can Be initiative from the Lord Mayor's Appeal. And that's aimed at speaking to up, upcoming school leavers in the, in the less leafy suburbs, shall I say, of London, about the opportunities that are offered on offer literally on their doorstep, but more importantly, about how to get those opportunities. And I'm a firm believer that creativity and innovation have been and always will remain key. So I think we need to get greater diversity in our talent pool and, and, and different thinking in, in our organisations. Having said that, you know, for a more sustainable market, I think we, I think we're already seeing a move. You know, when I was an underwriter once upon a time, you know, I was told that underwriting is an art, not a science. Then I think we've all heard that. I think we're definitely driving towards that underwriting is becoming more science than art now. Um, and that data is is a critical function of that. Um, so I think we all need to be strengthening how we analyze and deal with data. I think if we talk about sustainability in the wider remit, I think we also see that with you know what's going to happen with potential climate change impact and what what do our portfolios look like if we model some of those changes. So I think, you know, modeling data scientists, data analysts, I think we're going to see insurers becoming increasingly centered around those sorts of, of expertises. And then I think, you know, for, for brokers and clients, well, clients, you, you know, you're going to be looking to make your own businesses sustainable and, and have your own path to that. And I think for, for brokers, it's going to be need to adapt to perhaps what, what insurers will be needing in the future as, as data. Because uh, I think we're all getting increasingly more data hungry. But I think on the other hand, though, we need to be a bit more creative about what we're actually using the data for and how we're using the data and perhaps, you know, feeding that analysis back a bit more. Because I think probably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but you probably have a feeling you give all this data in and and do you do you get a collective view back of some of the data? I'm not sure that as an industry we've been great at maybe sharing that back um, or finding mechanisms in which we can share that back on a more anonymized sort of general basis. Yeah, some really good points there, Claire. And uh, one, of the, one of the responses you were giving a bit before about the long, you know, the, the, the long-term program capability and restrictions and challenges in the marketplace was really kind of that, the, the kind of, I guess it's structural barriers that are there. You've then also kindly, you know, talked about the probable, you know, the flip from, so like shift to art to art to science, and so with that kind of in mind, you know, who would have thought ten years ago some of the biggest companies in the world would have been the likes of the Amazons, the Googles, and they're increasingly looking to expand their footprint. You know, you're seeing Amazon getting into pharmaceuticals, Whole Foods stores, etc. 
into technology, you know, looking at automotive vehicles as well. The barrier of entry into the insurance market, which is still fairly fragmented, seems to be ever lower, although I know there's still lots of regulatory barriers there as well. But do, do you actually see at some point one of the big tech players really saying like, you know, we're great at managing data. We do all the data mining. The kind of insurance companies are saddled by legacy. We can really take a big advantage play into this market, which is, I think, what, one and a half, two percent of global GDP, and really make big inroads into that to, you know, support their shareholders and stakeholders. Yeah, it's a good question. I think from from my side, um, as a company that is going through the temporary permissions regime um, post-Brexit, I wouldn't underestimate the regulatory demands. Um, And I'm not sure what there is as an appetite with with some of the names that you've mentioned there for dealing with the regulatory authorities to that extent. I don't think it would necessarily fit in with their their concept of entrepreneurship or empowerment. Um, I think... And I, th- and I think it's more relevant probably for the SME retail space than it is for the corporate, you know, bespoke area. Um, because I think, you know, those brand names would have, you know, great attraction for SME retail. They're not subscription markets at that lower end of the market, um, which again, you know, we'll probably, you know, we can touch on that as well in terms of difficulties around that. Um, but I think it's probably more likely that we might see one of these tech companies combining with a carrier um, so the carrier can sort out the regulatory environment with the disruptor then focusing on the user interface, the data, the search dynamics, all of those aspects. And I think if there are sort of companies out there that do that, that could be, that could be, you know, if you, if you married those sort of two strengths together, um, that could be really significant. But as I said, I would see that more in the SME retail space rather than a corporate bespoke area where, you know, your the limits required are significant, um, and and the subscription model is needed just to spread that risk around. I mean, I'm not sure some of these companies would want to to put you know a billion dollar limit straight on their balance sheet 100% themselves. They might well want to, you know, they might want to play a game like that, but I think it would be hard to see that at this moment in time. And, and just on that then, Claire, do, do you see perhaps going the other way where the insurers might well be reaching out to some of these companies? Because as you mentioned about brand and reputation, mm. you know, the insurance industry in a consumer sense isn't necessarily a warm and fuzzy, you know, high scoring reputation, you know, whereas, you know, some of the big brands that are out there the Amazons, the Googles of this world, do you see perhaps insurance companies moving towards the tech companies and and perhaps seeing what kind of collaborative opportunities there are by using that sort of um, kind of, how can I say, synergy of the the two plus two equals five and everyone everyone wins? Well, I think, you know, from my own experience at HGI and and also, you know, when I I worked towards the Allianz and I'm aware this is other happening in other companies, you know, the insurance industry, is quite, you know, the major insurance players in the insurance industry are already probably significant investors in a lot of insure tech. Okay, they're not, they've not been investing in the Googles or the Amazons, but, you know, there's certainly a lot of niche products or insure tech opportunities that are, are being actively supported by a lot of the market players. Now, they've probably still got their own branding because, I mean, for some of the players, it's a sort of try before we buy sort of concept, you know, do we invest a bit, see how that goes, 
could we model some of those processes and, and, and use some of those processes in our wider organization or what could the learnings be? So I think you're already seeing major insurance companies being active. You know, it's not, it's not an area that we're not active in. It's just probably not the probably the links to the major carriers that you would know the name of is probably not quite so evident because there's a benefit in that insurtech just trying, you know, to make their own path in the world. You're right, Claire, regarding the entrance of, you know, for example, Google's, Amazon's e-commerce platforms as well, other e-commerce platforms outside of Amazon entering insurance. I, I see that possibly more on the consumer side, as you said, or more than kind of micro insurance. And putting my other hat on with regarding captives, we're seeing these companies' captives get involved in in kind of offering that third party kind of affiliated risk to their to their, their broader products. We all know, already know telecommunications companies do that, using their captive to sell handset insurance. So I think we'll see entry in that regard. And as you say, regarding these these large tech giants partnering with commercial existing commercial carriers. I know Google have done that with a couple of reinsurers on this Google, I think it's cloud risk management platform. Uh, they're partnering with a couple of insurers on that to offer a product to their Google cloud customers, but it's backed by experienced large commercial carriers. So we're starting to see some of that happen. Claire, just, just lastly, um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about in terms of your magic wand, should we be looking at what different roles people currently play in the market? How do you foresee the role of the, of the broker developing as the market cycle evolves? And, and do you envisage a shift to a more direct or non-broker relationships direct between the carriers in your case and, and the uh, large corporates? I sincerely hope not. Um, <laughs> I think um, I think you know talking about sort of shifting more direct relationship uh, for large corporate clients, that really would be a false economy. I think for for all of us, and I think there's a couple of different things at play here. Really, one is as a corporate insurer, yes, love to have a direct relationship with the customer, but that doesn't mean that I don't understand or don't underestimate the role the broker plays particularly in a subscription market, particularly when we're talking about placing large limits or, or large and, and the advice that they're giving. You know, we, um, we work in that corporate space. We work on the basis that the, the customer is a mature customer in terms of, in terms of understanding their risk um, and that the broker provides that advice as to, as to who might be the best carrier or the best fit or the best combination of carriers uh, where you're going to get that market alignment. We certainly don't have with the appetite or the or the resources within our own organization particularly in the uk i mean in other countries you know some of the markets are set up more like to do this but it's quite a different resourcing model that you need if you're going to go on a direct basis and i just don't see i think the client would lose out in terms of of the advice and that independence uh, from the carrier and i think you know we're trans transitioning a lot of work onto the carrier that the carrier might not be particularly great at doing so for me it's a bit of a bit of a no-no there as i said i do like to meet our customers and hear directly from our customers what it is they need so that we can try and listen to that and we can try and put the right things in play having said that could there be some areas where perhaps the information flow is direct from a client to carry it yeah there could be uh, we, we talked earlier in this at the beginning and i'm going full circle here in terms of there may be data flows. I mean, does the broker need to be on every element of the administration? Maybe not. But I think the, the broker relationship in that sort of key placement phase and uh, is, is, is critical. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. 
maybe Matt might disagree, but uh, I think uh, brokers do a useful job. Yeah, Matt, what, what would your view be? What is your ideal kind of relationship set up between yourself, broker and, and carrier? Well, I think when you first uh, responded to Claire, I guess I was probably a little bit shocked, I would say, when you said, you know, you, you really didn't hope that, you know, corporates would be, you know, closer to, to uh, the, you know, the big insurers and reinsurers. And I guess, but I think the way that you then articulated it, I can absolutely get where you're coming from in terms of resource setups, systems, et cetera. But I guess this is more from a, a vision of, yeah, how do we actually use technology in the right way? I think that coming back to one of your magic wand responses about how we can standardize data, I think that would certainly help be a, you know, reduce the barriers in terms of engaging with uh, with with the, with the corporate uh, with the corporate insurers and reinsurers. As a risk manager, I think it's absolutely critical that we we get ever closer to our our key insurers, which I think also aligns itself that even though we might well have this continual barrier of typically the 12 month cycle, if we can still maintain 12 month cycles, but with long-term relationships, again, that by its very nature further cements that more direct relationship, I think with your, your key, you know, primary first, second access layer carriers. I don't think it's one size fits all though. I think you're absolutely right, Claire. I think that there's an awful lot that the brokers do that adds huge value, but I think it's about getting the right balance I really do think it's about, you know, what's the capability of resource from the, the risk management corporate versus what's the requirement of the broker and then, you know, making sure that dovetails ultimately with the insurer and reinsurer. I, for one, as I said, I, I really do advocate a much closer relationship. I guess that's not right for everybody. I think, I mean, the closer relationship definitely is a, it's a given. It's a given, you know, Matthew, on that side of things. But I think, you know... I think I would also sort of recognise that that the broker does play an important matchmaking, for want of a better terminology, a matchmaking uh, between between customers and the market at large, and finding you the right the right carriers to partner with. And you, if if you were to do that on a direct basis on your own, um, you know that means you understanding you know the risk appetite maybe for 20 or 30 companies I mean that's a bit of an ask isn't it otherwise you're getting anchored to maybe the one that you found in the first place and and, and maybe you don't get so much choice going forward because you, you you yourselves wouldn't be able to run that so I think it's depending on to what extent did you take the analogy in terms of you know going direct direct as opposed to as opposed to increasing the strength of the tripartite relationship which I think for all of us, is something that we aim for. Yeah, and maybe just on that, Claire, uh, I know that there was a recent report that came out from PwC, and I think the report was headed up about turning change into opportunity. And it was interesting that one of their key findings that they envisaged that uh, there's going to be a shifting in the, the balance of power much more to consumers and corporates, very much because the expectations in terms of the products and services that they're buying are going to be ever greater. So maybe that kind of aligns itself with something that Richard mentioned before, that I think those sophisticated corporate buyers, particularly with, with captives that they're increasingly looking to utilize ever more, are probably are going to be looking at ever more direct relationships with you know, strategic insurance and reinsurance carriers. Yeah, it's about listening, isn't it? You know, um, 
the insurance industry has evolved and will continue to evolve. And, and I think from my perspective, I like people trying out different things or trying to do different things. But it starts with listening to, to you know, where your company is going, what it is you need from us. And, and whether or not we can find a way to to provide that and you know and you have a much effect, more effective listening conversation if if you're in the room and you're not getting it third hand so um so I think I would only support that well that's been an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion and, and this is the reason why we too try and include uh, an Emmet member with uh, our CEO guest for the episode because I think we get a lot of excellent uh, back and forth and debate from from different perspectives and that was a really fascinating half an hour so it just leaves me to say uh, first to you Matthew uh, thank you very much for joining us on Emmet Talks Thanks, Rich, and thanks, Claire. And Claire, thank you to you for being our, our latest interviewee, and we hope to uh, see you in person again soon. Thank you very much, both of you. It's been a pleasure.